Yesterday was a, a really happy day on London Live. Hopefully we can make today similar, but there's a headline that I really, really don't like. Really, really, really. Here it is. The United States reportedly increasing attention and even attacks on Russia's power grid. Well, what does that matter? We don't live in the United States. We don't live in Russia. Yeah, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like it at all. Um, this goes back a long, long time ago, years even, when we had a few people in U.S. security who stuck thumb drives into computers they shouldn't have. And next thing you know, there was a breach, and Russia was apparently somehow involved, and I'm sure they'll make a movie about it someday. But when we had the Trump administration appoint a new individual to deal with cybersecurity in the United States, one of the things, and the New York Times has outlined this very well, one of the things that that individual is... A proponent of is offense instead of defense. So when it comes to cybersecurity, it's not about lock everything down. It's not about change your password every five seconds and make sure it has four characters, a capital letter, two small letters, and a symbol that you've never seen before in your life. He believes that you need to go on the offensive. So if somebody is going to try and hack into you, you want to make sure that you have some nice little sleeper cell kind of stuff in their system so that if they do it to you, you can do it right back. You can force them to stop. What this will give us is one of two things eventually. One, cyber warfare. Now, I think we're a long way away from that. At least I hope so. I don't know for sure, but nobody wants a war of any kind if they can avoid it. And as much as, yeah, there's hacking this and hacking that, and there may be government involvement in anybody, you can't, can't necessarily pinpoint it. It's very difficult to trace where it comes from. When you have two sides with the power to do something, what happens? All we need to do is rewind time to the Cold War. We had the power to push a button and send nuclear warheads over the ocean into Russia from the United States. And there was the power for, at that time, the USSR, to send warheads all the way over into the U.S. And we had the Cold War, where everybody kind of played a game of chicken. You going to push the button? I'm not going to push the button, or maybe I will. But only if you do it first. And that's where we sat. Well, this could result in something very, very similar. Hey, we got some stuff embedded in your power grid. You do this, and we'll turn around and, and do that. And you hope that nothing comes of that. The problem that I see here, and I don't like this, and maybe it goes back to a book that I read a long time ago, but it was a book that had a lot of research to it, and it's called One Second After. And if you look at what some of the most precious resources are right now, what would you list them as? If you were to take the world's most precious resources, what are they? Well, number one, water and fresh water. So fresh water, because 
I don't know if you've seen what happens to humans if they go without water for a long period of time. They don't tend to do well, and we haven't quite figured that out. So fresh water is very important. So at some point, we might have to defend our fresh water. That's a story for a different day. What would you put at number two? What would you say is number two? It's easy to say that we need food, water, and shelter. So would we put shelter down? Eh, I don't think so. You know what number two would be for me? Power. And not the power to rule or govern. Power. Electricity. Look at all of the things that we have that rely on power. Our lives rely on power. We're very lucky that we can walk in our door and flick a light switch and the light comes on. We are very lucky that when your phone, your little computer in your pocket, starts to go down in power, we can plug it in and recharge it and then run around with it some more and stay connected. That right there is a big luxury as well as it's a necessity. And if you were able to interfere with a country's power grid, you'd have a big, big advantage over them. And the book that I cited one second after, it's an interesting read if you want to read it. And some of the research was done through the United States military. Essentially what happens in this book is there is a nuclear warhead that is detonated, not on top of something so it blows everything to smithereens. No, no, no. Because you look bad when you do that. See World War II. It is detonated high in the air. And what it does is it wipes out anything electrical. So you then are taken back into the Stone Ages. And then it looks at what the fallout would be from all of that. And the fallout is not pretty in any way. So this... This I don't like seeing. I don't like seeing people messing with power grids and saying, yeah, well, we're going to go on the offensive. We're going to make sure that if they can do it to us, we can do it to them. That's what we're going to do. Uh, Yeah, I don't like that. This came out yesterday. Russian President Vladimir Putin gave some reaction to this. Uh, One senior intelligence official told the New York Times it has gotten far, far more aggressive over the past year. We are doing things at a scale that we never contemplated a few years ago. In my mind, that's not good. And you may be looking at it and saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, you got to fight for your rights. You got to be tough. You got to. No, no, that's that gets you into places that you probably shouldn't be. That's what that attitude does. If you're a good fighter, well, then sometimes you can win the fight. But in the end, you're going to win the war. You know, fighting isn't what it used to be at all. And I'm not talking about war, but let's boil this down. to Anybody who believes, you know, if, if you are, are going to be picked on, you just have to find a way to stand up for yourself and punch that bully square in the nose. Yeah, well, okay, but things are different now. And that bully will then go and get four of his friends and kick the crap out of you. And that'll that'll just happen. And then you'll have to try and get four of your friends, and it escalates. Yesterday we had a shooting at a celebration. I don't even know where that came from, but it was isolated. It wasn't somebody showing up because they knew two million people were going to be there. It was somebody who had a grievance with somebody else. And how is that solved? Shooting somebody. That's how it's solved. That's the way that certain people deal with things. So you can't look at this 
in an old-fashioned way of doing things. And a lot of times, I believe the United States acts that way right now. You know, that, well, you know, we're going to punch that bully square in the nose. We're not going to take it. Come on, men. No, that's, that's not the way the world works anymore, in my opinion. So in this particular case, when we're seeing things like this, when we're hearing things like this, a Russian security source has said, we see and note such attempts to intervene in things like their power grid. However, we managed to neutralize these actions. Well, that sounds like a very Russian thing to say. Don't worry, we have complete control over everything. The fact that this stuff is making it into the mainstream media, the fact that this isn't just some kind of spy mission that you don't hear anything about, that's concerning to me. So we'll study more about this. I want to talk to somebody in particular about this. And right now, they are, I believe, somewhere over uh, North America in a plane. So we couldn't do it today, but we certainly will look to do more of it tomorrow. And see whether or not it even makes sense. That, yeah, are we heading into kind of a Cold War situation where we're playing a game of chicken, but instead of nuclear warheads, it's the power to turn off electricity? It's the power to interfere with that. You know, that's that's the new age stuff. We've known about diseases and, hey, you know, if, if we want to get somebody, we'll just unleash a whole lot of smallpox on them. There you go. That's why the United States didn't destroy smallpox a long, long time ago when they had an opportunity to do so. And what are we seeing now? Cases of smallpox every once in a while still exists. Could have been wiped off the face of the earth. Somebody decided, mm, that's too important a weapon. So we're going to hang on to that. And the power over somebody's electricity grid, that's a really big weapon. So they're going to try and hang on to that power. Speaking of the shooting yesterday in Toronto, I don't want to look at the shooting in particular, but one thing that I think deserves exploring in all of this is how well yesterday went off. If you were to take two million people, and put them into a small space and hope that everybody behaved, you were hoping for a bit of a miracle. And yet, again, aside from an unfortunate incident right near the end that apparently had nothing to do with the fact that there were two million people there, this this was just somebody settling something at a certain time. I don't know. We'll see what comes out of that. But the fact that they were able to get through that and we didn't see people injured in many big ways or crushed against walls or things like that, that's, uh, that's pretty outstanding. And in a moment, we'll talk with someone about organizing things like this. How would you actually put that together? How would you take security and say, you know, we can make this work for 2 million people to show up? Because I don't think they expected 2 million people to be there. Think about it. If you've ever had a house party that's gotten out of control, if you go back to college days or university days or time when your parents were away and you decided to have a party and too many people show up, what's that like? It's not good. It gets completely out of control very quickly. Sometimes things get stolen, things get smashed, things get wrecked. And that can happen because too many people are there. Yesterday, if you look away from what happened at the end of the day, there really wasn't anything that went wrong. So how exactly 
did Toronto police go about that? We'll talk with someone who has a knowledge of organizing things like that or being involved in things like that when we return on London Live. Because I think the city of Toronto and Toronto police, for sure, deserve a big piece of credit and a big pat on the back for making things run as smoothly as they did. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Yesterday's Toronto Raptors parade and celebration in downtown Toronto was pretty wild. Never seen anything like that before in Canada. Even the Blue Jays did not have that happen for them. The world's a different place now. You get hype spread a whole lot easier now. I think that helped yesterday. But things did get a little dangerous, certainly. Um... There was a real problem when, you know, four people are shot toward the end of the day. And as much as you may have seen pictures of just seas and seas of people, things could have been a lot worse. Because after that shooting, here are some of the reactions that came from people who were in the crowd. All I felt was a crowd coming right across like a wave, like a thunderous wave of people. With did no, you, did no you hear anything? Out, with no way out. I didn't hear anything. Just, just crowds of people coming at us. I looked over and the whole wave of people started running backwards. I got trampled, knocked into the wall. We had to jump over an eight-foot wall. My heart is broken. There was women and children running and scampering everywhere. So it wasn't like things were completely safe, but they did a very good job, Matt Devlin especially, he's the play-by-play voice of the Toronto Raptors, keeping everything calm because if they had stopped that ceremony because of what had just happened... I don't know what would have gone on, but eventually they kept it going and and he did a very good job keeping everybody calm because that could have been very, very bad. Overall, you always have those tense moments, no matter what. Even if the shootings had not taken place later in the day, you still have really tense moments at events like that. So we wanted to get some insight into putting that all together from someone who has had experience in doing so from a policing standpoint. Please welcome former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner to London Live. Chief Faulkner, what would yesterday have been like for police officers and security? Well, you know, so two things about yesterday's event. One is that uh, organizing a special event for a large municipal police service is no big deal. Uh, believe it or not, that's what police do. Plan, plan, plan for all sorts of things, whether it's a drug raid, whether it's an execution of a search warrant. Uh, planning is really uh, a forte of major police services. I think the problem, though, yesterday revolves around the unknown as far as how many people are showing up. I do not think that either the Toronto police or any other police service could have been prepared for, well, what, what are they saying? Maybe two million people? Yeah, that's what they're saying. Well, did no one work in Toronto yesterday? <laughs> so so that, that was the issue. And I mean, at, at the beginning of the parade, you, you see they had a hard time just controlling the crowd to get back off the road so the buses and the police vehicles could lead the parade. And so, um, you know, I think they did a great job. 
getting the parade through without hurting any of the spectators that wanted to see uh, the Raptors. And so planning it is not that big of a deal. Now, if it's a political thing rather than a sporting event, then you have the whole idea, is there threats? But this is a kind of an event where no one wanted to hurt anybody, although there was an incident. It's not really connected to the Raptors. It's just people that were there. But But the event has a different perspective when you have to put together a political rally or, or somebody that has threats made against them. So this was a, a happy event, uh, well within the uh, ability of Toronto Police Service to organize. I think they were just overwhelmed by the number of people that actually showed up. Yeah, there's no way in the meeting you could sit there and say, okay, the population of Toronto is roughly 2.9 million. <laughs> yeah, just just about 80% of those will probably show up to this thing. I don't think you could have envisioned that. Now, at the same time, when you've got a lot of people, I mean, it's almost surprising we didn't hear about more injuries where you get large groups of people who want to get to the front of something and all of a sudden you get that crush factor. We see it in concerts and stuff. Is there planning that goes into that? Well, I think uh, yesterday you look at the time of day. So um, the crowd wasn't really consuming alcohol. So when you mix uh, alcohol uh, evening darkness and uh, people packed together. Uh, that's the cocktail for some disaster. But yesterday it was early morning, like the parade was supposed to start at ten, and people were lining up at seven a.m. So there wasn't that combination of of those three factors, alcohol being the predominant one. And so, really, it it wasn't a an, an angry crowd. It was a happy crowd. And with the absence of alcohol, I think it certainly helped things. And so I think, you know, the bad incident that happened close to Nathan Phillips Square is is just an aftershoot of, of what's going on in Toronto now and their gun violence. Yeah, and and I mean, if we look at, at that particular incident, when when officers are seeing that happen, obviously you've got to address it, but what is the concern? That everybody will all of a sudden run? Because somehow that didn't happen. Some people did, but overall the crowd seemed to stay in control. I, well, I think it's because it was so isolated. I think, first of all, there were so many people that were packed together that the vast majority had nowhere to go to begin with. And so the people that were surrounding the shooting incident themselves, yes, dispersed quickly, which you could see from an overhead camera or whether it was from the helicopter. Uh, and, and I don't know yet how many people got hurt because of running away. Uh, we know there was a number of people that were shot, but, but, but I don't, I don't really, the incident yesterday, uh, really, I don't believe had a real connection to the Raptors or the celebration. It was just people there that, for some reason, either had a vendetta, there was somebody owed something. Uh, that's probably what's happened. As far as organizing the event, uh, it's, it's well within uh, the Toronto Police Service uh, ability to organize and control such an event. Uh, the G7, uh, when we had the political leaders uh, from the G7 in Toronto, and there were some issues there, of course, uh, Toronto police did, did reach out to uh, OPP. Uh, I was chief at the time. We sent down our uh, public order unit and tactical teams. And so for large political events, or we know they're going to be violence, and G7 always has violence, uh, there's a different level of planning and coordination. This really, I think, was all handled by Toronto Police, and they did a good job.
We're talking with former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. And Chief Faulkner, I think some of your officers actually made the cover of Time magazine, some of your... In that, in that particular, yeah. there was yes, there was a, a picture that uh, Toronto cruiser was burning, and there was um, uh, public order unit officers uh, uh, marching kind of by that scene, and that was the London Police Tactical Unit and and public order unit at the time. Yeah, pretty amazing. Now, obviously, that there are going to be protests, there are going to be threats in those situations. Would you would you put? You know, I mean, the, the the strange thing is, how do you get the amount of officers and still be able to keep regular policing duties going? Somebody joked yesterday, yesterday would be a great day to rob a bank in Toronto, but how do you do that? Well, so go back to yesterday. No one actually believed that there'd be two million people. So, yes, I would think that their resources were stretched. I don't believe they asked for assistance from other municipalities. But look at here in London when we have this focal. Uh, London police resources are stretched. They have to ask for, well, they ask for uh, Waterloo Regional uh, Public Order Unit officers to come down. So this mutual aid between major services is very beneficial uh, for the communities that require assistance. And this kind of event yesterday, though, I don't believe they asked for Durham or York or Peel Regional or Alton Regional to assist because I think really they didn't, they didn't think there'd be two million people, and it's a happy event. It's it's not where there would be potential danger. Well, Chief Faulkner, really appreciate the time and the insight on this. Have a great day. You too, sir. Former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner, as he says, this is what police are trained to do. So that's not an issue. It doesn't have that political aspect to it. So you don't necessarily have those attack concerns, although. We did have a a bit of an attack in it. Overall, though, that was well done and not easily performed. To keep everybody doing what they're doing, as much as there was a big delay in the parade, that, that was well done. One of the things that stood out yesterday was the role of the politicians in it. I want to get to that after news. I want to talk about the politicians being there, and they're always going to try and align themselves. I mean, let's see how many politicians in the next little while try and put themselves beside Kyle Lowry or Kawhi Leonard or, you know, show up wearing a Raptors flag just to get cheers, things like that, because they've got to play the game of politics, especially at the federal level, in order to try to win, in order to try to grab even even the leadership in terms of of what we have going in the future. If you look at, okay, let's make sure that even if I don't win, I still am secure as leader. I still am secure in my riding. We're going to see all of that. And I'm not a big fan of it, but there's a couple of things I want to point to and ask you about after news, one involving Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the other involving Ontario Premier Doug Ford. That will happen as we continue on London Live. We're also going to talk Victoria Park in about 20 minutes from now. And a little later on, weeds, not weed, eating weeds. Oh, you mean edibles? No, not edibles, not not marijuana, not weed, weeds and eating weeds. That's something we'll get to in a little over an hour from now on London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFPL. In five minutes on London Live, we're going to talk about speeches. Speeches. 
Certainly one made at Western University has created a bit of a, a stir. And if you know the story, well, you know what's coming. If not, we'll let you in on a little of it. And then I've got a thought on this because I don't know how you how you fix it. I don't know how you prevent this from happening. And I'll tell you why. I really don't think if someone makes inappropriate marks in a live speech, you have the ability to control any of it. I really do not believe that. You can think, yeah, I, I know what to do. Don't believe that for a second, and I'll tell you why. First, I want to go back to yesterday. Politicians, they they want to be in the spotlight. They need to be in the spotlight. What's a politician's job? And don't say run the country, the province, or the city. What's a politician's job? Get reelected. That's a politician's job. That's job number one. And so they want to be in the big places. But you really risk some things. Yesterday may have been a day where Ontario Premier Doug Ford looked at it and said, you know, I can kind of sniff what's going to happen here. Uh, Maybe we do this a different way, because you've probably heard the crowd yesterday at the Toronto Raptors celebration and their reaction to Doug Ford. The Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford! Gary Bettman gets booed as the NHL commissioner and still keeps his job. But yeah, you want to stay away from things like that. And would you have looked up and said, I, I don't know where Doug Ford is. Where Where is he? You never do that with politicians. You never would look up at the stage and say, I, where are all the politicians? They should all be here. They should all be saying something. I don't think anyone ever says that. If it was just the Toronto Raptors on stage, you would have looked and said, yeah, it's the Toronto Raptors on stage. They won the championship. Wow. Unless, you know, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, is doing some kind of welcome for them, I don't think you'd miss him either. And then you had Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And I'm not going to play all of his speech, but just so you get a little gist of it in case you didn't hear it, here's a, a little tiny bit. World champions! I'm not going to stay long, I just have one big request. We love this celebration so much. We love this team so much. We want them to do it again next year! He was just a hype machine. He was the guy that you send out in front of a crowd before you get a big thing going, and you get the crowd all jazzed up. That's what he was. That sounded strange to me. I don't know, he... Was he was he too screamy? Does that make does that make you look at him and go, wow, we've got a cool prime minister? That's awesome. I don't know. Was this Bill Clinton playing the sax? Is that what this was? Was this Bill Clinton going on MTV? I don't know. I I'm at a loss for what that was from Justin Trudeau. Maybe it was just pure enthusiasm and excitement. And if it was, fine. But you can't look at a politician and say, yeah, I don't believe there's any underlying agenda there. There's always an underlying agenda. So was he trying to get in there with the young crowd? I don't know. But it kind of felt like that to me. I can't say for sure, but I thought it was weird that they played so much of a role, especially because the crowd had to wait so long. You just, you sense what's going on and you say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just going to do a little thank you and wave and, and be professional. And I don't feel that was there with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It's just my thoughts.
Let's take a break because I want to talk about speeches in a moment. We had another one at Western. This is not the only one we've had. We've had a couple in the past year that haven't gone over very well. And we had one yesterday made by a guy by the name of Stefan Macchio, who is a music composer. He's a writer. He's a pianist. He's Grammy nominated. He is very well recognized. But his remarks didn't go over very well. And I think the attention that this story is getting is going to have other institutions looking at what happened here. It certainly will probably have Western looking at what happened here, saying, okay, how do we prevent this in the future? And you know what the answer is? I don't think you can. So we'll outline the story, and I'll tell you why. I don't think you can avoid this. This is going to happen again, or things like it are going to happen again. And I'll tell you why. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Let's talk speeches for a moment because one by Stefan Macchio, a music composer, Grammy-nominated music producer, a Western alumnus. He has created some discussion over a speech that he gave as he received an honorary degree at a graduation ceremony yesterday. And you've heard some of this already. Uh, You've probably heard the line, my earliest memory of driving in off the 401 with a sign that said, thank you, fathers, for dropping off your virgin daughters. So that that was, I suppose he was trying to make a joke there. I think that was a frat sign. Uh, You've probably heard this part of his speech on 980 CFPL News. Or perhaps... One of the most iconic pieces of music that still haunts me to this day. Ooh, ah, Delhi is the res. Ooh, ah, Delhi is the res. You move to the left, you move to the right, peel your banana and oomph, take a bite. Yeah, okay. Um, Again, when you're putting together a speech, and if you've ever done any public speaking, it's not an easy thing to do. Because you're there to entertain. Usually that's your role. You're there to inform. You're there to inspire. You're there to entertain. When you've got a spotlight on you, do something exciting. Do something interesting. Do something that people are going to want to watch and listen to. So maybe that goes into it. Now, what he said was was offensive. I mean, those are old chants, old cheers. I don't sit back. I was on 3rd Miller when I was at Western, at Westminster College, and I don't I don't use our chant anymore cuz you know what the chant was made sometime in the 50s or the 60s. And it just doesn't fit today. There's a lot of things like that. And you can say, "Oh, here comes old political correctness." Yeah, okay. You can say that, but you can't stop the fact that we've reevaluated a lot of the stuff that we say and we do and have said, you know, that's not appropriate. You know, that is offensive to somebody. Why do you want to offend somebody? Well, it's funny. Yeah, no, no, that's that's not the way the world works. And the more that young people take over, listen to them. You know, it's not hard to say something that would be deemed offensive that you don't even realize it. 
There are times that I'll be talking away on London Live and I'll say something and I'll think, yeah, that came out wrong. And you kind of make a note saying, I'm not going to use that phrase anymore. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. So here's the issue with this. You're going to have universities, certainly Western, saying, how do we prevent this in future? Because this didn't go very well. So even if it wasn't intentional, it was said. And it's, it's not what we want. It's not what we need. I'm sure that's being said. So how do we deal with this? You know what the answer is? You probably can't. Oh, sure you can. It'd be really easy. All you have to do is get the person who's giving the speech to give the speech to people and they can vet it. They can read through it and say, yeah, okay, well, we like that. We don't like that. We like this. Oh, but you don't want to say this. I don't think that's even an option because if you see some of the best speakers, they don't have a word-for-word speech. If you're going to write a good speech and you're going to give a good speech, you don't write it word for word and memorize it because that's going to sound like you wrote it word for word and you memorized it. Some of the best speakers will know how to get from point to point to point. So I want to talk about this and then I want to talk about this. Maybe I'll use this joke right here. Then I want to talk about this, then this, then this. And you know how to get somewhere. And a lot of times you'll have people who, you know, you'll write down four, five, six words, depending on how long the speech is, and those will be the words just in case you get stuck. You'll have them nearby, but you'll be able to do it. Those are the people who give the best speeches. Now, in doing that, it's basically working without a net, because is there a chance you could say something? Yeah, but you should also be able to give your speech to somebody who you trust. There is never one time when I get up on stage to deliver some kind of speech or some kind of talk where I don't run it by my wife. She's my best critic. And I'll say, okay, honey, can I run through this? And what I do in front of her may not be verbatim what I do the next night or the night after or whenever it is, but it'll be pretty close. And if there's a joke, yeah, I'm going to run it by her. I'm going to run it by the kids. You're going to run it by somebody saying, hey, what about this? How does this sound? You've got to do that vetting process yourself. And in this case, I don't think harm was meant, but in a way, harm was done. If you have any thoughts on it and what you see as being a solution to it, we've got a couple minutes. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. Or do you feel people just need to relax in all of this? See, I don't. You know, you've got to know the... The temperature of the room that you are in. You've got to know exactly what you're doing and where that's going to go and how that's going to be absorbed. You do. That's just, that's a part of today. Whether you like it or not, that's a part of today. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. Marilyn, what do you think of all this? Well, I take exception to that uh, remark of his. I think it's positively disgusting. You've got a daughter, Kylie, and uh, Craig's got a daughter, Charlotte, and I've got three, Caroline, Mary, and Lori. And I just hate to think that that kind of stuff, you know, would go on. 
Yeah, you know I mean, what I mean? It, but it does. I mean, well, a lot I of that stuff does, still does, and not, that's the kind of stuff that I think, Marilyn, we're trying to get out of locker rooms. We're trying to well, get out of, but it takes a long time. But I think it's up to a person who's in a position of, in this case, appearing before a large number of people to do that due diligence, to make sure that you're not saying anything that's going to be deemed offensive. Does it take away a funny joke? Eh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it was that funny. No, it wasn't. And that uh, pompous ass McKay or McKay or whatever his name is, who said his speech was great. Has he ever heard Winston Churchill's speeches? <laughs> I've heard recordings of him. And I remember Winston Churchill. And that was not a great speech, period. It just tires me, dear. And uh, I might be an old fuddy duddy. But I've raised three nice girls and girls that have got good jobs and have done well in life and a, a great son. So I, I'm telling you that it just makes me so mad. And the words that to think that that guy gets an honorary music degree for writing filth. And I worked my butt off to get my degree in music, mastering Beethoven and Bach and Mozart and so on and so forth. You know, I, am I still on? You are, and I'm I'm listening to every single word. You're you're right. I mean, this is an honorary degree. Does he does he have accomplishment? Yes, he does. But at the same time, these are words that I'm sure he would have taken back. Marilyn, thank you for the call. Oh, I'm thank you, thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> it's not even a thing like that, Marilyn. I love it when you call. Have a great day. You too, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. Talking quickly about Stefan Macchio, music composer. We've had Western's president issue an apology for this. Um, it's, it's about realizing what works and what doesn't. And I don't know how you, you can give the guidelines. That's why I don't think you're safe from this not happening again. Because you're not. If you invite somebody... In a way, you've got to vet them. You've got to know what they're going to say, but you're never going to know every single word. Because, again, some of the best speakers are not going to take the time to write out every single word. A lot of busy people would not have the time to do that. I don't have time to do this. And here's the other part of that. If you are going to say, all right, uh, we need you to come and speak. We, we would be very honored if you would. But the one thing that we're going to need is every single word. And if you cannot provide us with that, you can't speak. And the person would say, yeah, I, I really don't have time. I know what I'm going to talk about. Don't worry. You know, look at this video. I've done this before. Don't everything is going to be fine. And they say, yeah, but yeah, this is protocol now. We've had some bad things happen in the past. So we want to make sure that we know exactly what you're going to say. They're just going to say no. And then you're going to be left without a speaker. That's the way that's going to go. The speaker has a lot of power in what they do. So they can say, yeah, I'm, I'm not giving you every word. Then all of a sudden you become like former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who at first would answer any question. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, I'm, you know, his people would say, we're going to need to know the topics. And then it was, we're going to need to know the exact questions. And then it's, don't deviate from the questions. And then it's, we're not going to take questions. This is only for pictures. And that's the way it went. And his prime ministership went with it, kind of went down the tubes with that. So you're not going to get what you're looking for if you think you're going to be able to vet everything. You can't have that control. 
So you have to trust the person who is speaking. So I don't think this is the last time we've heard something like this at all. Let's let you know what's coming up on the next hour of London Live. We are going to be talking about Victoria Park and what to do with it. High rises, medium rises, low rises, no rises. We have some concerns, and we'll lay out a couple of sides, one from the city and one from some concerned individuals. 519-643-2222. Before we close this out completely, Glenn, your thoughts on it. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Mike. Hey, how are you doing, Mike? Pretty good. Um, You're mentioning some of the best speakers will actually, you know, work without a net, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. The other thing is, though, the best speakers actually know their audience. So somebody like that in front of a, you know, a convocation group, they should know that it's not only the students out there, but probably their parents and their grandmothers. Mm-hmm. So if you get up on a stage like that, imagine yourself saying that joke to your grandma. And if you wouldn't say it to your grandma, you probably shouldn't say it at convocation. Glenn, it sounds like you've done some speaking because that's exactly the kind of thing that you've got to do to vet yourself before you get up on that stage. Well, I'll admit I teach. So every time up in front of the classroom, I got to know my audience. I got to know the students in there, their backgrounds, gender, race, whatever. And you got to be careful when you're speaking in front of a group of people because you will put them off or That's set right. them off or offend. So, yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot harder today than it was even five years ago, ten years ago, isn't it? I yeah, I got into teaching late. I've been at uh, you know I've been at Fanshawe College for a few years, and uh, yeah, I mean the demographic that we've got there, the students that we're in front of day in and day out. Um, international, everything like that, the respect that needs to go out there. It's a two-way street, but again, you got to know your audience. Well said. Glenn, thanks for the call. Yeah, no problem. You have a great day. You too. Let's leave it at that. We'll let you know what's next on London Live when we return. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. How would you describe Victoria Park? If you don't use words like amazing or best squirrels in the world, then you haven't spent enough time there. But now that we're looking at developing downtown, growing up, not out, we have some questions regarding Victoria Park. And planning committee dealt with that last night. We've had a a number of public participation thoughts on this. And we've got phase one of the plan. So we're going to discuss that with the help of city planner John Fleming and also with the help of Kate Rapson, who is the chair of the Woodfield Community Association and a founding member of Friends of Victoria Park. We'll get their thoughts and maybe even if they exist, some concerns on what is still ahead. Plus, weeds, not weed, and eating weeds, not edibles, eating weeds. We'll learn more about that. Your lawn may be a treasure trove, and you didn't even know it. As London Live continues, news is on the way next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Before we move on to Victoria Park, a couple things to get caught up on regarding politicians at yesterday's celebration. See, I know they're going to be there, but they should never be focal points. I don't understand that. I really don't. No one would miss you if you weren't there. You know, there's a tradition to bring greetings, and I like a lot of politicians. I really do. But I've never understood the bringing of greetings from the city. Well, we're going to bring greetings. Okay. Uh, If you didn't, I don't think anyone would know. I really don't. So Andy points out that yesterday 
He says he saw in some of the pictures that Andrew Scheer was there as well, conservative leader. I don't think any of them should have been there. It wasn't about them, according to Andy. It was about the Raptors and the city of Toronto. I'm with you. And then with regard to being offended in speeches, Terry says, being offended is not an illegal activity. We enjoy freedom of speech. We don't need people policing our words. Unfortunate what he said, well within his rights. And that is referring to Stefan Macchio, who is a Grammy-nominated music producer, composer, writer, pianist. And he was speaking at a convocation ceremony and received an honorary degree at Western and happened to give a Delaware chant that is long out of date and happened to say uh, that he remembers driving off the 401 and seeing a sign that said, thank you, fathers, for dropping off your virgin daughters. That was not a Western University sign. I think it was a frat sign. But you have to know. And Glenn made the point. You know, know your audience. If you are in a room full of former Delaware students and they do that chant, yeah, you know what? Refer to the chant. Know your room. But chances are, anymore, you're in a room where something is is going to offend. And you might say, well, we can't have a world like that. But we do. But we do. That's what it's come down to. And you've got to watch what you say, especially if you are in a position where you are using words and you are representing either yourself or your company or, in this case, your alma mater. You've got to know who you're talking to. And you've got to know there was a point during that speech where someone said something to Stefan Macchio and he called it derailing him In other words, it rattled him because he didn't realize what he had said was kind of offensive. But somebody pointed that out from the crowd. So you got to know. You got to run it by people. Run it by young people. Grab somebody. Say, hey, you know, I know you have uh, an 18-year-old. Could they listen to this or could you ask them what they think of this? That's what you've got to do. If you're going to deliver something publicly, what you present publicly, you've got to be accountable for. Like it or not. A lot of people don't like it, but it's true. We're going to deal with a big public space right now. Public space in London, Ontario, that everybody knows and loves. Victoria Park. If you take a walk through there, there was a time when the trees weren't that big. I love how big the trees have become. Best squirrels in the world. Find me better squirrels than the ones at Victoria Park. If you're bored, you can just go hang out with them. They'll hang out with you. Great squirrels. Great tree cover. Great events that go on there. It just has an excellent vibe right in the middle of London. So there is now concern as to what development around Victoria Park may do, may bring. We have a phase one plan in place. And we're going to kick off a conversation about Victoria Park with city planner John Fleming. We're also going to be speaking with Kate Rapson, who is a founding member of Friends of Victoria Park. We're going to look at some of the information, look at some of the issues that apparently exist, and just so that we're up to speed on how this development will go. Because, again, what does the city want to do? It wants to develop up, not out. And many cities are doing that. 
We want a grocery store downtown. You want to bring people downtown. That is going to be happening more and more. You know, all of this talk about getting people out of their cars, they didn't mean tomorrow. I used to think they did. I used to think that there were certain individuals in municipal government who wanted us out of our cars maybe later today. Hey, could you, could you ditch your car by 4 p.m.? All right, I'll give you till 4.10. That's not what it is. But you see the movement. You see where things are headed. And so we've got to be prepared for that. And that's part of this. But you also want to preserve what is great about a place. You don't want to compromise it. So let's begin with city planner John Fleming, who joins us on London Live to talk Victoria Park. John, how is Tuesday going? Tuesday is great. Thanks, Mike. How are you doing? Not bad. Looking at the discussion revolving around Victoria Park and what should happen in and around the park, we're pretty lucky to have it. Somehow we've kept that over the years, but now we've got questions as to what should take place. What do you see as being some key points to hit in the discussion as this progresses? Well, first, uh, I agree with you. We've got a heavy weight on our shoulders. We need to make sure we get this right. It's a beautiful park. It's a beautiful contact with the Heritage Mansions and uh, the Woodfield neighborhood. And if we don't get it right, we're really doing a disservice to uh, those that have planned and designed that park going back over 100 years. Um, I would say that some of the major points are things like that great Woodfield neighborhood. It's a Heritage Conservation District. It's uh, low and mid-rise. As a mix, we've got the City Hall District, we've got London Life around there, but uh, we need to make sure that we pay respect to that heritage neighborhood to the northeast. Uh, We also have to understand um, the park itself and the experience of being in the park. And um, at, at the same time, I think there's a great opportunity for infill intensification, and the question is how much in and around those the park. You can see there's parking lots that are just ready for redevelopment. Um, so how much, how intense, how high, and how can we design it so that it's a, a great complement to the park and the neighborhood that's adjacent, and Richmond Street for that matter. So that's a lot of hows when we're looking at some of them, the, the infill of perhaps some high-rise buildings. How do you know how high is high enough and how high might be too high? What are we looking at? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that whatever we do has to be very pedestrian-oriented. So the base of any building needs to be something that's comfortable for pedestrians. Those people that are in the park, those people that are walking along those streets, um, that that line the north and the east and the south side of the park, for example, you you need to feel comfortable when you're up against uh, those buildings. So if we're uh, designing and, and planning for tall buildings, we need to have something at the base which feels good, which is animating the space, doesn't feel like dead space, and is only so high, and then steps back before we get to those towers that can climb up uh, higher. Um, when we talk about the towers themselves, uh, we are much better off with what I would call skinny towers. Uh, skinny towers give that light, that access to light, and, and avoid shadow, and there's less wind impact. So um, really what we need to think about is how we can design these uh, buildings so that they fit well within the context and enhance the park, create an edge, but don't undermine the quality of the experience in the park or that neighborhood to the northeast. We are talking with John Fleming, city planner with the City of London. Now, John, you mentioned the the parking lots that might be available for redevelopment. Where would you see those? Would they be on kind of the, the west side of the park? Is that the ones we're thinking of? 
Well, there's a number of, of parking lots that surround the park. And you don't realize it because you get used to it, but they're there. Um, on the east side of the park, there is a pretty substantial parking lot, uh, essentially beside Centennial Hall. If you look at the London Life site to the south, you'll see a parking lot um, that is just to the west of London Life Building. And as you go uh, to St. Peter's Church and go north of that, there's a number of parking lots that are sort of between Clarence and Richmond. So there's a great opportunity for redevelopment. Uh, and there's some other opportunities perhaps as well. Um, one that we're looking at is uh, in the sort of interior of the block, uh, just north of, of the park. And um, that is surrounded by mansions, that block, but the interior does allow an opportunity for some sort of development there. So these are the kinds of things we're looking at. And as I said, you know, we need to make sure we get the form right, the height right, or we're really doing a disservice to both the, the neighborhood and the park itself. As far as development goes, would it be development to bring in, let's say, apartments and condominiums, that sort of thing? That's exactly right. Um, so we are not, as a city, developers, but what we can do is set the contacts, the regulations around it, and also through the planning permissions allow some incentive for developers to build. And so um, the kinds of things that we're looking at are certainly the residential towers. We want to. This is the London plan. We want to support infill intensification. It allows for us to grow up rather than out as a community. Um, but at the same time, we want to uh, allow in this kind of context the opportunity for some mixed use. So wouldn't it be great to have uh, cafes or restaurants or other commercial type of services that are maybe at the base of these buildings that uh, allow people to use these types of services right adjacent to the park? Excellent. Well, it sounds good. In terms of the concerns you're expecting to hear, I mean, the the heritage aspect, absolutely, the height of buildings, absolutely. Is there anything else that you have heard leading up to this? Well, uh, yes, there's, there's a number of issues that are on the table and have been discussed. We've had a lot of consultation with the community, with the property owners and developers. Of course, a, a lot of the, the property owners and developers want greater height and density and more opportunity for the land. The community is saying, hey, you know, we're okay with some, but we, you know, let's keep that height and density and intensity to something that's reasonable. There's also discussion around things like view corridors. So from St. Peter's Church, for example, there's a wonderful lawn there. Um, the idea of keeping that view corridor open uh, from the park to the church and, and the other way around as well. Maybe creating linkages from some streets that are currently clipped, like uh, Princess Street, which currently uh, Centennial Hall is there. But over time, uh, that kind of site could redevelop. And if if we can create that additional linkage to the community, that's a positive thing. There's another linkage to the West. So these are the kinds of things that we're looking at. There's lots in the soup. There's lots of community conversation. But I think the key, Mike, is that we want the community to continue to get involved. Um, we have a website called getinvolved.london.ca. And if you go to that website, you'll see a number of projects where we're looking for the community to become involved. Victoria Park Secondary Plan is right there. And uh, that will allow you to get all the information you need. It allows you to provide us with information. It'll give you all the contacts you need. We're going to be going to the parks and the festivals, and we've set up some virtual reality so that you can see what these forms, these different heights might look at, look like as you're walking through the park in a virtual reality world. So some new ways of engaging, and we're asking for the community to uh, get involved and help us through this process. Great stuff. John, thanks so much for the time. Anytime, Mike. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me on.
Thanks for being here. John Fleming, City Planner, City of London on Victoria Park. So that gives you the city's scope of things. Now, as always, when you're dealing with an area that has a lot of history to it, an area that has certainly some things that people want to protect, you're going to have, I don't even know if we want to call them concerns, just you have some things you want to keep in mind. We're going to get to those in just a moment. Kate Rapson, chair of the Woodfield Community Association and a founding member of Friends of Victoria Park will join us as we look at development around Victoria Park and what that could mean for the park itself. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We are continuing our discussion about Victoria Park, and we want to get some thoughts from Kate Rapson, who is very passionate when it comes to Victoria Park. Kate is the founding member of Friends of Victoria Park, also a chair of the Woodfield Community Association. Kate, we just spoke with city planner John Fleming. When you look at key things that you believe need further discussion following last night's meeting, what do you look at? I think, uh, you know, the draft plan was was an okay start. You know, I thought it was, um, you know, fairly general in spots. There weren't a lot of policies specific to the park in it. I think uh, one thing that kind of came across is just how dear this park is to a lot of Londoners, not just Woodfield, but, of course, all of London. You know, we enjoy it as our open space, uh, enjoy it for festivals and having a walk and so forth. So I think what... I'm hoping the city will do, and I did ask them to to look at this, um, is to, you know, put the health and the well-being of the park itself at the center of this conversation rather than just always, like, what is going on around the park. So how does what is going on around the park, how is that going to impact the park itself and how it's used? So what do you look as being the main concerns about how development around the park would affect the interior of the park? Well, basically, when you look at the draft plan, there could potentially be high-rises on all four sides of the park. Um, you know, a couple of 35-story towers and a number of 25-story towers, uh, 20, 16, 18 stories, 16 to the north. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of um, infill. That's a lot of pressure on the park. You know, I mean, certainly there's concerns from a number. Uh, we, uh, a couple of urban planners that we've actually spoken to and have retained as to help us understand this, um, the Friends of Victoria Park, um, is to, you know, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, that's okay. No, no, you've, <laughs> you've been able to talk about the, the number of high-rises and, and what that would mean yeah, for the interior. that's right, that's right. So, what it was, so you know, these ur- several urban planners that we've spoken to, um, you know, who we hired as consultants, have asked this question, like, how come there is an environmental study of the impact of such intensification at the perimeter of the park, you know, should that be done and could it be done so that we understand what we're doing before we do it? Makes sense. What's that? It makes sense. Okay, great. Yes, I think so too. So that's what we're, I think, kind of hoping the city will move towards is we have a good, we have a decent framework at least, or at least some sort of framework to start with. It's a starting point, and uh, I think lots of people will have lots of input as to where it could go from here. Now, the high-rises themselves, would it be the, the shielding of the park from things like sunshine that would be a concern? Would it be the kind of the skyline that would be a concern? Well, a number of things are mentioned because uh, Victoria Park is in, a, is, um, in the West Woodfield Heritage Conservation District. And one of the things that is um, 
mentioned in that plan, if you read it, are, are vistas and uh, um, views and that sort of thing. So for sure, that has definitely got to be part of the conversation. Like, how does that level of infill impact the heritage designation of the park itself? You know, um, how can we protect some of those heritage features, which is which includes both built and natural heritage? Um, so, yes, I think, you know, shadowing for sure, wind, you know, the heat off these buildings, it's a lot of concrete, you know, as, the, as, as we're sort of facing the effects of, of climate change, how will that impact, you know, um, intensification at the perimeter of these small urban green spaces? We're talking with Kate Rapson, president of the Woodfield Community Association and also part of Friends of Victoria Park. And we're kind of looking at, at the discussion at, at the draft plan that's come out as to how you want things handled in and around Victoria Park in terms of growth downtown. Now, in terms of, of the heritage aspect of it, Woodfield is is known as a kind of a great heritage district. It has distinction as that, I think. Now, what would the the concern be there? Would there be anything about the fact that you're intermingling high rise structures with what's already there? Um, I mean, I think uh, you know the Woodfield Community Association and even the Friends of Victoria Park are supportive of infill where it's appropriate, as long as it's within scale and does not negatively impact the park. So, for sure, I think there are some great open spaces and parking lots, service parking lots that. Um, that could have a nice residential um, project or building on there. It's just a matter of how big it is and how many of those can the park sustain before the health of the park is affected. So I think Woodfield's kind of looking at for sure the density, but also the impact on this, um, this sort of this London's gem of a park. So no one seems overly opposed to anything. It's just how it's carried out. Well, the plan isn't terribly specific if you read it. It's still very general. There aren't a lot of specific policies in it, so uh, it's hard to know what we're pushing against until we can see some specific policies come out of it. Have you asked in terms of when those might be available or when those next steps might happen? Well, we're hoping in draft two. I think there was a lot of feedback that John Fleming and his group um, heard uh, heard about last night, so I think it was all fairly constructive. A lot of people talked a lot about you know, certainly the impact in the park, but also the fact that there's, you know, 2 million uh, square feet of surface lots in the downtown core area. So why are we, how can we unlock those those spaces that are basically empty and, uh, you know, underutilized, you know, before we start intensifying the land around the park? Kate, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Mike. Kate Rapson, chair of the Woodfield Community Association and a founding member of Friends of Victoria Park. So again, there there is a solution to be had here. There will be a solution in that something is going to be done. It's a matter of the specifics coming out, which will probably happen in the next phase. If you could say, okay, yeah, this building is going here, uh, this building is going here, this one over here, because... The other side of things that we've got to look at is if you are to put up buildings that are 25 stories, 35 stories, yeah, they're big. If you've got a view of the park, uh, that's that's a big, big advantage for developers. They're going to be looking and saying, yeah, you know what, we can get a premium for the units on this particular side. That's going to be amazing. And don't think that that doesn't factor into things. It's just a matter of preserving 
what is there. And you know the energy of Victoria Park. You know all of the things that go on there. You know how amazing it is just to walk through. You've got some big shade in the trees, but on a sunny day like today, you've got sunshine throughout the park. You don't want to compromise those sorts of things. So this conversation is far, far from over. But that at least gives a little bit of the groundwork. If you have any thoughts and you want to share them, email me, mike at 980cfpl.ca. News is on the way next. This is Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Good afternoon. It is 2.30 on Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Mix of sun and cloud, 24 degrees, 28 with the humidity. You'll want to keep in mind a few crashes in the region causing some heavy delays. In the Lucan area, there's a crash on Elgenfield Road or Highway 7 near Adelaide Street. Elgenfield is closed from Mitchell Line to Highbury Avenue. And on the 401 westbound, there's a crash at Elgin Road. Two left westbound lanes are blocked on the 401. Watch for some heavy delays in the Dorchester area. Toronto police say they're still looking for a suspect and a firearm after yesterday's shooting at a rally celebrating the Raptors' historic NBA win. Police Chief Mark Saunders says three people were arrested and are facing firearm-related charges and two guns have been recovered following the incident. Saunders says four people suffered non-life-threatening injuries from the shooting. The city of Toronto has estimated two million fans turned out for the celebrations, half of them gathered at the rally outside City Hall. London police say they don't believe an early morning shooting at a South End hotel was random. In an update issued this morning, police say a 55-year-old London man was hurt during the incident at the Ramada Inn at Wellington and Exeter Roads yesterday. He went to hospital for help and staff there contacted police. Police say the evidence led them to the Ramada and they don't believe the incident was random. Investigators continue to probe the case and anyone with information is asked to contact police or Crime Stoppers. As the Ontario Liberals seek a new leader, one contender has brought his bid to London. Don Valley East MPP Michael Coteau grabbed breakfast with local Liberals this morning at Campus Hi-Fi. The former cabinet minister says he wants to bring an alternative to the province's current government. Well, you know, Doug Ford can try to uh, uh, distract people with a six-pack politics. Uh, we're here to restore values. We're here to, uh, uh, to champion the, uh, the, the beliefs that Ontarians have and to build an Ontario that is, uh, that is decent, uh, that is uh, progressive, that wants to move forward in a direction that is, uh, is good for all Ontarians, not just a few like Doug Ford has suggested. Coteau has sat in the provincial legislature since 2011 and is one of only seven remaining Ontario Liberals currently in office. The military is mourning the loss of a soldier killed in a parachuting accident in Bulgaria. Bombardier Patrick Labrie died from his injuries last evening. He was taking part in a multinational training exercise called Swift Response 19. Labrie was based at CFB Petawawa. His hometown has not yet been released. You're listening to 980 CFPL. You know what anniversary we all seemed to miss yesterday? And it's probably good that we did. Yesterday was 25 years since a very significant day in, do we call it pop culture history? I don't think we necessarily call it history. June 17th, 1994. Where were you? When I tell you what this event is, you'll remember exactly where you were. Exactly where you were. You ready? June 17th, 1994. 25 years since O.J. Simpson was driving a white Bronco 
into Brentwood in California. See, now you remember where you were, right? 25 years, significant anniversary, and we didn't pay all that much attention to it. Maybe that's a good thing because I don't think it deserves a whole lot of attention, but it's one of those watershed moments. Where were you when O.J. Simpson was driving his white Bronco with his buddy Al Cowling, right, through the freeways of California on into – did he go back to Brentwood? Isn't that where he ended up? So, 25 years. One other thing to point out before we get to our next guest. Do you remember, even longer ago than 25 years ago, you got to go way, way back. Remember those crazy glue ads where you'd have a guy in a hard hat and he'd be hanging onto his hard hat and they had crazy glued his hat to a beam? I don't know whether that was actually accurate. They probably put in a few screws too, but scientists have now come up with a slime-inspired product. So what does it do? It is strong enough to bear the weight of an average man. In other words, I don't think the crazy glue was doing that then. It must not have been. Uh, They've come up with a really strange substance. They say glues are kind of weak and reversible. They've they've never come up with one that that was that strong, but then reversible. So maybe that's the key in this. It's strong, but it's reversible. This It comes up like a, a slime, and they've given it properties of dried snail mucus, but apparently it's, it's working. Very strong in the dry state. They can quickly soften it up and get it back into the state at which you can take it apart again. So does this get rid of hammering and nails? Is that what we're going to have? You know, if you go to move... You just take all of your stuff, you, you'll have all of your stuff constructed, your, your furniture, your bed frames, your tables, your chairs. You just walk around the house with a hose, Psh, wet it all down, take it all apart, put it in a car, boom, and then you build it back up with this glue when you get to the next place. Is that where we're heading? Is that what the future looks like? I don't know what the future looks like. One thing that we do have in our midst right now, in our present, is expensive groceries. And thanks to the United States and Russia uh, trying to infiltrate each other's power grids, uh, we probably have the threat of apocalypse. So our next guest is going to help us through that. What if you could wander around, maybe even in Victoria Park, and you could find some weeds, and those weeds could become lunch, Our next guest does that on a pretty regular basis. We're not talking weed, and we're not talking edibles, but we are talking edible weeds. Next on London Live, you'll get a kick out of this guy. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Just got a note from Andrew saying, please let everybody know to avoid the 401 westbound near Putnam all the way down to Elgin Road. Right now it's at a complete standstill. Looks like a mix of construction and perhaps a crash. A lot of people are getting off at Putnam Road. So that's avoid the 401 westbound near Putnam all the way down to Elgin Road. It is at a complete standstill. If the world goes completely upside down, and I mean more upside down than it is right now, what do you need to do? You need to find somebody who knows how to shoot straight, probably. Uh, You also need to find people who can survive without having to make use of the grocery store. You need to know as many of those people as you possibly can. Our next guest is one of those people. 
Our next guest is Brian Doukes. He's from Gather, Ontario, and we're going to talk about not getting rid of weeds from your lawn or your garden. We're going to talk right now about weeds that you don't want to get rid of at all because you can eat them and even sustain yourself to some extent. Brian, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks very much for reaching out. Well, thanks for being on the other end of this, because I think this is fascinating. We're always talking about how to lower our grocery bills, and uh, sometimes if if you're hiking on a trail, I remember having this discussion with my wife. I was the guy who brought it up. Maybe it's too much walking dead from years ago, but if there was ever an apocalypse, could I eat that, or how about could I eat that? And I had no answer for it whatsoever. Um you do have some answers for this. In fact, what would you say your diet is like? How would you describe it? Uh, so my diet, especially from spring until the end of fall, uh, includes quite a bit of wild foods and wild wild gathered uh, herbs and weeds and all sorts of things whenever I'm out. I spend a lot of time outside. So uh, often what will happen is I'm out hiking uh, along trails or camping or anything like that. I just sort of nibble as I go. Uh, and that will often fill in one one full meal for me for a day. So, uh, I think that's probably how people have done it for, since for, for a very, very long time until we've uh, lost track of just how much wild food is out there. Uh, but there really is. It surprises people when they come out on walks with me. There's, um, there's an abundance all around us, and as long as you're safe and you know what you're looking for, there really is a ton of food out there. Ah, there is the key, and that's something we'll get into. Unfortunately, we can't show pictures over the radio, mm-hmm. but you're able to, even when you're hiking, burning calories, you'd be able to kind of fill in a meal just snacking on things along the way? Yeah, exactly like that. Uh, so uh, now if I'm doing a heavy work day or whatever, um, and then I might, uh, obviously I'd want to have a good breakfast and a good dinner afterwards. And uh, I do usually, I love to cook. So uh, that's one of the things that drew me into this is that there's so many wonderful ingredients that are not just edible, but truly delicious. And so I, I will pull some of those into fully prepared meals later on. But uh Snacking, snacking and uh, nibbling along the way is a really great way to experience an environment. We're talking with Brian Doukes from Gather Ontario, and we'll get into Gather Ontario in just a little bit, but uh, let's just talk about eating stuff that you find, because back when we were kids, everybody will eat a blade of grass or pick up some kind of thing and stick it in their mouth, and a lot of times it's really bitter, and you think, I'm not doing that again. It doesn't taste good. Are you are you kind of putting up with the bitterness in order to get the nutrients, or can you actually find tasty stuff too? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit of both. Um, absolutely, bitterness is, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because bitterness is a, an important quality in foods, and I would assume, I believe, uh, that our, our palate has changed as we've drawn away from wild foods to not include as many bitter things as we perhaps previously used to. But it's interesting, when I do walks with nutritionists and stuff, they mention uh, often that um, uh, digestion is a big issue for a lot of people, that they're, their clients that they treat, and uh, that bitter foods are usually very much often used to help treat uh, stomach health and digestion. And so probably those bitter foods were an important part uh, of our diet. But that said, there are some truly delicious uh, foods that are out there. Uh, it surprises a lot of people that you even just on your own lawn, you can sometimes find things that uh, uh, have a place on a, on a restaurant menu. Uh, that when I introduce some of them to kids, they they spend the rest of the walk looking for those things uh, and uh, gathering them and, and trying them out. So there's there's some really good flavors in there. 
Now, the one thing that might scare a lot of people is the idea that there are poisonous things out there. So if you eat the wrong berry, if you eat uh, a mushroom growing out of the ground, you could be in some serious trouble. How do you figure out what you can eat and what you can't eat? I can't imagine it's trial and error. Yeah, definitely not trial and error, and it's a really important point. When you're anytime you're engaging with nature, you've got to do so with all your senses engaged. You've got to do so um, with the right amount of respect and the right amount of caution. And it's certainly, if you're going to eat something, you want to make sure that you you know what it is. Um, so I always tell people if you think about like a cucumber and a zucchini, somebody who'd never seen either of those might might confuse them. But I imagine uh, most of your listeners would feel, uh, if not all of your listeners, would feel quite comfortable going to a grocery store and picking out the two uh, two differences between those, even if there were no signs. It's really that level of confidence uh, that you want to go in before you eat something. So there's a, there's a really good sort of distinction can be made between identification, which is work, which requires going through uh, plant lists and guides and coming out on walks with people who know uh, what they're talking about and experience and following plants throughout, throughout a season, and then recognition, which is different from um, from just identification. And recognition is something where you really, truly know something. And you can go flying by on a highway, as I sometimes do, uh, and see something just in a flash out of the corner of your eye, and you know exactly what that is. So and that's will the level you, you want before you eat it. Will you actually stop at that point, go and collect that stuff up? Well, it depends where I am. I wouldn't stop on the highway. <laughs> so that's that's another uh, safety issue, I suppose, for especially if you're talking about in an urban uh, setting, you want to stay away from roads and highways and that type of stuff. Um, but sometimes, yes, depending on um, where I am, uh, I wouldn't want to go somewhere where I don't have permission to be on, on the land as well. But uh, uh, depending on the circumstances, sometimes I, I will stop at the side of the road and pick some berries and, and stuff like that. Absolutely. It is possible to have a wild diet. Brian Douks with us from Gather Ontario. He does it, reducing grocery bills each and every day. And, you know, if you had to find food, Brian would be the guy you'd want to be walking beside in order to do it. Because we're not talking about trapping animals here. We're just looking at things that are growing out of the ground. Absolutely, yeah. And most people will, will be surprised at just how much is growing right on their lawn, which is the best place probably uh, to start learning. As long as you're not spraying or uh, adding any pesticides to your lawn, you can follow your lawn through a few seasons and probably start to find some pretty cool things. And then maybe even introduce some native species to your lawn that are beautiful, uh, but also food food species. So hmm. uh, it's a lot easier than gardening in some cases. I've done walks for uh, urban gardens, and <laughs> some of them laugh and, think, and tell me, you know, I've been pulling this out to plant something. Uh, right beside it that uh, actually doesn't taste as good as the wild food. So maybe now I'll give it a corner uh, of itself and you don't have to put any of the effort in. <laughs> wild. Okay, well, let's talk about the lawn. Dandelions are now mm-hmm. kind of getting through their season, but we've heard dandelion wine. You hear dandelion yep. salad. Uh, what about dandelions? How useful are those things? So they're, they're, they're extremely useful. There's quite a few different things you can get for them. They're not uh, at the top of the list in terms of taste. They're one that, um, depending on which part of the plant you're using, using the uh, the bitterness is definitely going to be a quality. So uh, if somebody's tried to sell you on dandelions and you think that's what all, all wild food is, uh, don't worry. There's plenty of others uh, that would maybe be to your taste. But uh, dandelion root coffee is one that surprises a lot of people. You can get the roots from dandelions uh, in the fall and make a coffee-like substitute uh, that really does taste quite a bit like coffee. Uh, of course, has no caffeine, but uh, sometimes if you're trying to cut caffeine out of your diet, that's a, that's a good way to go. Uh, the flowers can be used in fritters, which makes everything taste good, uh, and they can even make capers out of the unopened flower buds, which are 
pretty interesting. No way. Okay. And you say that that's not even one of the best. So what on our lawns could we find that actually is good? So there's a couple of wonderful things that you're likely to find uh, on your lawn. The first one that uh, most people, almost everybody I've ever introduced it to, uh, to likes is wood sorrel. Uh, and wood sorrel is one, uh, Oxalis stricta, the yellow flowered wood sorrel is the one that we'll often find around here. Uh, it's one that tastes like a sour candy almost. Uh, some people uh, have actually referred to it as sour clover uh, because it looks quite a bit like clover in the first um, first glance. But if you look closely at the leaves, the leaves are perfectly heart-shaped instead of round uh, like the clover. And if that's growing in your lawn, which is a very good chance that it might be, you can use that uh, just like uh, cultivated sorrel uh, to make lemon sauces or to throw it into vinegars and salad dressings or uh, just fresh on tops of salads and uh, wild fermented sodas, so many things that uh, it's wonderful for. And that has the little yellow flowers. I think we can all kind of picture that one. Yeah, tiny little yellow flowers, and it has leaves that look just like clover, except that they're like perfect little hearts. Have a close look. You might find those on your lawn. What about clover? That's something that's out there, and we always hear it's it's actually good for your lawn if clover is there. Try not to pull it out because that's helping, but can you eat it? Uh, so it depends on the type of clover. Um, and it's certainly good for your lawn, and it's good for pollinators, so that's great as well to be able to help pollinators. Um, the most useful variety of clover, that the one only one that I typically harvest, is the red-flowered clover, and I really like those flowers uh, dried and put into wild tea mixtures, uh, or some people will infuse them into salad dressings and things like that. It's not the tastiest, but there is some nutritional benefit from uh, going with the clover greens, you just have to be careful um, because there is uh, there are compounds that uh, come up in some of the Lisgay and white clovers that are potentially dangerous over time. Okay. And then anything else that you can point to that could be common on most lawns that we could turn into something to eat? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's tons more uh, that's out there, and, and depending on the season, another one that a lot of people find surprising is the uh, uh, orange daylilies. So the, these ones, uh, people will grow in their gardens and in their backyard, and they have a ton of uh, really good uh, edible uses at different times of the year. The young shoots of those can be used. Something like uh, asparagus doesn't taste like asparagus, but it's a young green shoot, which is really good. They have tasty little tubers. Uh, the flowers uh, themselves that come and open up for one day uh, before for closing up uh, can be stuffed with goat cheese and herbs and made into a beautiful little hors d'oeuvre in there sort of sweet pea flavored. So a lot of, lot of stuff that you can get out of that. Ryan, what do you um, recommend? Can we, can we go to our good buddy Google to figure out what's good and what isn't, or do you really need to walk alongside somebody like you who knows? I'd say uh, you, can, you can absolutely get some good resources. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily trust Google just on its own, but it's a place to start. Uh, you want to check multiple sources. So anything like this where you're doing something potentially dangerous uh, is to refer to three or four sources and cross-reference them. There's some very good uh, books now that are out, uh, sort of a resurgence has come in, in wild foods that has resulted in a, a number of very good books. There's also some very good online sources. Uh, be careful with forums where people are, are posting uh, opinions. doesn't mean that they're not uh, right, but I would consider those more as a first, huh, this is something to research rather than taking that uh, as gospel. Got you. Brian Dougs joining us from Gather Ontario. Brian, before we let you go, tell us about Gather Ontario. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Gather Ontario is kind of a, a passion project that I've uh, started in the last year or so. Uh, I have been leading walks for, for about four or five years now, and I uh, was originally based out of Ottawa, where, where I'm still continuing to do walks in that region because I love the Ottawa Valley. Uh, but it's really about teaching people about the wild spaces and the wild foods and plants and mushrooms uh, that grow all around us. 
uh, and helping people engage with uh, land in that way. So uh, I take people out on uh, both plant and mushroom walks uh, and uh, try to do little workshops on uh, different things you can do, preparing wild sodas and teas and all that kind of thing, because I think uh, it's a wonderful way for people to be able to build flavors out of spaces that they love, and really uh, it ties us to the land in a way that nothing else uh really does. So saving some of that knowledge that um, that has been lost in terms of wild foods and spreading it, I think, is, is a good thing. And uh, I love uh, the way that it changes the way you see the land once you start to recognize things as you get out there. Brian, thanks so much for the time today. This has been great. Great. Thank you very much. I, I had, a, had a blast. I appreciate it. Brian Dunks from Gather Ontario. Things that you can actually eat. From dandelions to the little stuff with the yellow flowers. I don't know. Maybe I've watched too much Walking Dead in my life, or I think too much about the old apocalypse. I don't expect there to be a zombie apocalypse, but uh, to be able to survive on your own is a skill that we're losing more and more every day. You know, those grocery stores, they get a lot done for us. To be able to say, yeah, you can eat that, don't eat that. Yeah, but go ahead, eat that. That actually tastes good. That's a skill that we need. Thanks to Brian for helping us to get a little bit more of it. We'll close out the show in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Yesterday, just about every Raptors fan had a blast watching their team celebrate in a big way. What do we say about today? Today's when they'll start talking about Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, Adrian Wojnarowski, who often gets affectionately called the 31st franchise in the NBA because of all his reporting. If Woj reports it, you got to know it's true. He says that Kawhi Leonard is looking to L.A. He was asked about the Lakers, not the Lakers, Clippers, and it's between the Clippers and the Raptors for where he goes next year. We go away to news at 3 o'clock. London Live brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.